Please rise for the reading of God's word from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Hear now God's word. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Thus far the reading of God's word, and all God's people said. Amen. Cultures, like individuals, are like individuals in that they uh, have bad habits, and bad habits can become normalized. They become second nature to us. We do sinful things that perhaps bother our consciences at first, but we soon grow accustomed to them, and they start to feel normal. They start to feel right. How many things used to be unthinkable, but now we don't bat an eye? Many of you will remember Francis Schaeffer. He and Dr. C. Everett Koop wrote a book in 1979 titled, Whatever Happened to the Human Race? They saw the trajectory of our post-Christian world. The moral standards of a Christian culture he said, could no longer be taken for granted. Here are Schaefer's words. There is a thinkable and an unthinkable in every era. One era is quite certain intellectually and emotionally about what is acceptable. Yet another era decides that these, quote, certainties are unacceptable and puts another set of values into practice. On a humanistic basis, people drift along from generation to generation, and the morally unthinkable becomes thinkable as the years move on and on. The thinkables of the 80s and 90s will, remember he's writing in 79, the thinkables of the 80s and 90s will certainly include things which most people today find unthinkable and immoral, even unimaginable, and too extreme to suggest. Yet since they do not have some overriding principle that takes them beyond relativistic thinking, when these become thinkable and acceptable in the 80s and 90s, most people will not even remember that they were unthinkable in the 70s. They will slide into each new unthink- uh, each new thinkable without a jolt. And so here we are almost 40 years after he penned those words. One other quote, Dr. Lloyd-Jones described the modern man's view this way. Man under religion, this is modern man speaking, is a creature of taboos and fears 
which have all been imposed upon him. But now, modern man feels that he has grown up and has shaken off this incubus. He has got rid of these taboos. He has acquired a scientific, healthy, manly view of life and is now free to use his intelligence and his learning. Thus, I say, he congratulates himself on the emancipation which he has achieved. The result of this is that modern man derives and dismisses the old standards, especially the old moral standards. He laughs at them and ridicules them. Modern man not only does, but defends things which a hundred years ago and even more recently were regarded by most people as unquestionably sinful. Indeed, he goes beyond defending them. He advocates them. He actually goes so far as to say that a man who does not follow these practices, these modern practices, is a man to be pitied. Now, as I said, this happens to cultures, but it also happens to individuals. It can happen with you and with me. There are probably things that you tolerate now that you wouldn't have thought of tolerating just a few years ago. But I want to point out that while we change, God doesn't change. His moral standards, because they are a reflection of his character, of who he is, his moral standards never change. His definitions of good and evil are constant, while ours are mutable. He is never, ever caught up in a trend or a fad or a hashtag. He is never moved by public polls or opinions. As Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, our concern must be to adopt His standards. Not my way, but your way. Not my will, but your will. Not my thoughts, but your thoughts. We must know why... Why they are, uh, why they exist, we must know them and commit ourselves to do His will and not our own. And that brings us to our text today. Paul says that there are certain things that Christians should never, ever do. In fact, these things, he says, should not even be named among you. We shouldn't even hear that Christians are engaged in these things. These things are the negatives that are set over against the positive exhortation that he's already given us, that we are to be imitators of God and that we are to walk in love. And remember, throughout this book, and especially through chapter 4, he's been drawing this contrast between the old man and the new man, between the unbeliever and the believer, and it's a stark contrast. It's a contrast of holiness, of separateness, of distinctiveness. And so, as I've said many times, if someone asks of you, is, is he or she a Christian, there ought not be a, a moment that they hesitate, but say, absolutely, there's no doubt about it. There's no, I hope so, I think so, or probably about it. It's evident. Not because you wear it on your, on your shoulder, and not because you're obnoxious and pushing it in people's face but because they can see the love of Jesus Christ in you. They can see that you walk in love, that you're just, and that you're honorable, and that you 
are not foul and filthy and, and, and so forth. And it's not because you're a better person. It's because you're a saved person. It's because you're a rescued sinner. It's because God has done a work in you, a work of grace. And that's evident. And so, the negative things are completely incompatible with being a child of God. Again, Lloyd-Jones says of this passage, people don't like negatives. Sometimes I hear people, oh, that's, y'all are just too negative. The Bible is full of negatives. It's full of positives, too. You've got to have both. You've got to have the two in contrast to one another. And as we come to the Bible, we're going to speak of both. Paul speaks of both. There's no apology here. He's not embarrassed about bringing these topics up. He's not saying, I know this is sensitive and some of you are going to find this hard. None of that. He's a straight shooter. So again, Lloyd-Jones, people do not like negatives. But the fact is that the extent to which you don't like negatives is the measure of your lack of spirituality. The whole object here is to show the importance of the negative. The great object of our salvation is what? To go to heaven? To have our sins forgiven? Is that the great object? The great object is the glory of God, but the the great means of that is holiness. God is concerned with you being holy, of you being like Him in your character, in your conduct. That is the means. You see, only holy people go to heaven. For without holiness, Hebrews says, no one will see the Lord. I think it was R.C. Sproul who said that God is not nearly so concerned with your happiness as He is your holiness. Another way to think of that is happiness is a byproduct of holiness, not the other way around. Do you remember what Paul said in chapter 1 of, of Ephesians? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. So our faith is preparing us to walk before God in this world and to spend eternity in the presence of God. So, things not to be named among you. I think he deals with three main areas here in this text, and then he kind of goes on to elaborate upon those or expand those three main things. You'll notice that these passages, in this passage, there are three primary terms, fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness. And all of these overlap and relate to each other. These are not distinct categories, but perhaps you might think of this as a bit of a sliding scale or overlapping circles, uh, you know, the number of ways that we could conceptualize this. So let's begin with the first one, fornication. Yeah, we live in a world that would snicker at somebody even mentioning that word as though it were something wrong. But again, the Bible's not embarrassed, and we should not be embarrassed. The Greek word is pornea. It means 
any sort, all sorts, of, sexual, of illicit sexual activity. Now, this is not because God is against sexuality or sex, but rather because even our sexuality is there to glorify God. He created it, he called it good, and it's to be used exclusively to glorify him. And he sets the terms for that. He said, here's how it's to be used in a way that will be good for you and bring glory to me and be a blessing to the world. Our sexuality is to be used for his glory and our good. Illicit sexual activity is against holiness. It's what we would call profane. Outside of holiness, outside the temple, it is against our good. I want you to think a moment. How many lives that you know personally, much less if we just looked at history, how many lives do you know, how many relationships, families, and societies have been harmed or ruined or even killed because of sexual sins? A bunch. It leads to all kinds of other sins, including lying and murder and abortion. It leads to disease. It leads to all kinds of misery. As I've said, it's like, you know, what happens is our sexuality is like a chainsaw. In in the hands of a righteous, godly man or woman, it's used to do amazing things, to fill the earth with godly people, to to create uh, love and affection and communion, intimacy. But hand that same chainsaw to an eight-year-old and let him run through the house with it. It's no less powerful, but it's not doing anybody any good. Somebody's going to get hurt. Fornication is a, is a form of theft. It is taking something that is not yours to take. God didn't give you that. He didn't give you that permission. Or as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 3 through 8, I'm asking rhetorically, you don't have to respond, but how, how many of you want to know the will of God? I think we'd all raise our hand and say, yeah, I want to know the will of God. Well, here it is. Here's the first words in this passage. For this is the will of God. Okay, y'all ears, your sanctification, or we could say your holiness. What does that mean? That you should abstain from sexual immorality. Let me put a footnote. That means in your thoughts, with your eyes, with your ears, what you talk about, so with your words, and with your bodies. Abstain, stop, stay away from it. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, that's your body, your mind, in sanctification, which means holiness, and honor. Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles or unbelievers who don't know God. That no one, no one of you Christians, should take advantage of, and here's the word, and defraud, which means to steal, And defraud his brother or sister in this matter. Why? Because the Lord is the avenger of all such. 
as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. That's the opposite. Therefore, he who rejects this, I don't like that. He who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit, which is what's going to empower us, enable us to follow him. And then in Colossians 3, 5 through 7, Therefore, put to death your members, which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. You were an unbeliever. That might, have, that might describe the way you used to live. But you're now out of the kingdom of darkness, in the kingdom of light. Everything's changed. So fornication, number one. Number two, uncleanness. Not just sexual sins, but any kind of uncleanness or filthiness. This refers to anything that is impure, including our thoughts, our words, our deeds. Paul expands on this when he warns against filthiness, foolish talking, and coarse jesting. What we see, think, and say feed the fires of impurity. Paul is saying that we must quench those fires. He has already instructed us in chapter 4, verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Your words should be there to encourage, to help, to move people toward holiness and cleanness. More and more I hear professing Christians using unclean words or filthy words to express themselves. And I won't dignify them by giving you the list. You know what the list is. It's a list that seems to be getting longer. But this is just another example of the unthinkable becoming thinkable. Of our getting comfortable with sin, the normalization of sin. And so if you cuss, as we used to say it, or curse, and you use the language of the world, then how are you different from the world? While God created us to use our mouths to praise Him, man in his rebellion finds pleasure in using his mouth to do the very opposite. Our culture is filled with words that are dirty, nasty, foul, lewd, vulgar, profane, obscene, and blasphemous. Sin has corrupted our words because sin has corrupted our hearts. In light of the prohibition against fornication, we have taken what God made special and beautiful, for example, sex, And turned it into something common and ugly. And that's why it's now cool to be crude. It's a public demonstration that God is not going to tell me what to do. It's defiance against him. People love to take legitimate words out of context. Words like hell and damnation and God and Jesus Christ. And use them in 
casual or vain ways. Where in their original context, they were words that unnerve the unbeliever. And so by placing them, I think, in this lighter context, there's a hope that we can get comfortable with them. Other words corrupt and mock what God calls holy and good. While some words are simply base and nasty. Such expletives have become so common that we've grown accustomed to them. But I want to tell you something. God is offended every time it happens. And He changes not. Little men with little vocabularies constantly reveal their smallness. And again, even some professing Christians profane their baptisms with these careless and corrupt words. So we substitute words like heck or shoot or gosh or friggin' or some kind of Christian substitute for foul and blasphemous language. We want to get as close as we can. Since the Bible teaches us that corrupt words are extremely offensive to God, then certainly no such words should proceed out of our mouths or our keyboards, not even BAMF. Abbreviating filth is still filth, even if your mother and father don't know what it means. We owe this duty to God and to our neighbors. Why? Because we love them. We, sub, uh, we, uh, we are obligated to honor and defend the name of God and his word, and his world for that matter. Sin is a condition of the heart the mind, and the inner man, which is manifested through our thoughts, actions, and words. We are called to live with a servant's heart, affirming the dignity of every human being and the sacredness of existence. Matthew Henry says this, Filthy words proceed from corruption in the speaker, and they corrupt the minds and manners of those who hear them. Christians should be aware of all such discourse. It is the duty of Christians to seek, by the blessing of God, to bring persons to think seriously and to encourage and warn believers by their conversation. Third, covetousness. In verse 5, Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. In other words... What should not be named among you, what should not be said about you, is that you have some other God other than the true God. That something else is more important to you than Him. That's covetousness. They should not say that he or she loves this or that more than they love Christ and His church. Now, this kind of covetousness can include many things. Obviously, it could include your money and your material things, but it can include your friends or your education or your career or recreation or entertainment or hobbies or even your family. There's really almost no limit. Any created thing can become an idol. What are, these, what are the things that you are tempted to covet? Do you know what they are? Which things are you willing to put ahead of worship and the body of Christ? Paul says, don't even let it be named among you. 
Why does he put covetousness in a list with fornication and uncleanness? I think because covetousness is an insidious sin, which means it is stealthy. It is treacherous. It's deceitful. It doesn't seem as bad as those other things. If we were doing a hierarchy of sins, covetousness probably wouldn't be at the top, but Paul puts it in his top three. Hebrews 3.13 warns us not to be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, which brings us back to where I started this sermon. What we thought we would never do, we not only find ourselves doing, but we find ourselves doing it comfortably. Our new normal has made room for another God. And so Paul concludes with a warning. He is clear that we are to avoid every form of anything that is likely to draw us away to do any of these things. He says this, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Wow. Those are strong words. And Paul says, you already know this. He says, this is beyond dispute. There's no, there's, no, there's no elbow room here. There's nothing to debate here. You cannot claim ignorance. This is self-evident. The lines must be drawn far from the edge of the cliff. Not even named among you. You see, if you can't fall... If you're in a place where you cannot fall off the edge of the cliff, you will not fall. But if you're at a place where you can fall, you will fall. It's just a matter of time. Some little puff of wind will come up and take you over the edge. And the first thing you'll say is, I didn't mean to. But you've got to mean not to. That means you've got to put yourself in a place where it cannot happen. And if it cannot happen, it won't happen. Remember, the world, the flesh, and the devil are all issuing siren calls to you to come on over. In Greek mythology, the sirens were dangerous creatures who lured nearby sailors with their enchanting music and singing voices to shipwreck on the rocky coast of their island. In the Odyssey, we read the advice of Kirke, a goddess of magic. Here's what is said. The sirens bewitch everybody who approaches them. There is no homecoming for the man who draws near them unawares. For with their high, clear song, the sirens bewitch them. And they sit there in a meadow piled high with the moldering skeletons of men whose withered skin still hangs upon their bones. Indeed, no homecoming. And so Paul warns in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. The world is full 
of empty words. 24-7. From the time we get up each morning to the time we go to bed each night, the world is both shouting and whispering these empty words in our ear. Come on. There's nothing wrong with this. Have a little fun. I heard a song, I think it was yesterday, the lyrics. I've been good so long, I deserve to be bad. It's an old story. Remember, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree desirable to make one wise, empty words, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave it to her husband with her and he ate. You think anything's changed? And then there's that word in the Bible that is really unnerving. I think if you know you could have a list of words that needed that people would like to strike, this one would be right at, right at the top. Wrath. Verse six and seven. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. It'd be hard to imagine anything that the world ridicules more than the notion of the wrath of God. How old-fashioned. Do you really believe in hell? I can assure you of this. The Bible believes in the wrath of God and in hell. And God will not have man dismiss it. He will have the last laugh. And in case we missed the numerous references to it earlier... As the Bible comes to a close, it offers similar warnings. Just two quick passages in the book of Revelation. Who wants to wind up in the New Jerusalem? But there shall by no means, Revelation 21:27, there shall by no means enter in anything, that is to the New Jerusalem, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And in chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, verses 14 and 15, Blessed, happy are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gate into the city, but outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. But you know what? We don't have to wait to the end of time for God's wrath to make itself manifest. We can see the misery right now in the lives of people who have not forsaken these things. And if the misery hasn't completely shown up yet, I can assure you that it's just around the corner. It starts with guilt, which is a powerful judgment in itself. But if these things are persisted in, the guilt might diminish, but they will, it will lead to ruin. 
N.T. Wright says this. N.T. Wright says this. Let the hearer understand. God's wrath, in fact, isn't just a punishment waiting. Uh, punishment waiting for people at the end of the present age. It isn't an arbitrary thing whereby God makes up some rules to stop people enjoying themselves and then threatens to get cross with them if they go ahead anyway. God's wrath is built into creation itself. There are certain ways of behaving which are so out of line with the way God made the world, and humans in particular, that they bring their own nemesis. Sexual misbehavior certainly comes into this category. A holy God and his holy children will live in a holy kingdom forever. These are the only ones, he says, who have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Martin Lloyd-Jones again. The kingdom is one, and holiness is ever the one and only standard. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come into the world to lower the standard or make it easier than it was before for us to slip into the kingdom as though we could enter saying, we believe in Christ and yet be holding on to our sins. Our Lord said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, but he that doeth. And remember the illustration of the house built on the rock and the house built upon the sand. It is introduced with these words, Whoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon the rock. Paul says this is a holiness that is fitting for saints. Therefore, do not be partakers with the sons of disobedience. Stop participating in the system that is on the broad way that leads to destruction. Stop following the crowd over the cliff. Let's walk together in the narrow way that leads to the celestial city and that leads to life. In just a moment, before we come to the table, I I want to bring this together a little further, but let's pray right now. Father, thank you for telling us the truth. Thank you for warning us. Thank you for stripping away the illusions and lies and empty words of the world which seek to deceive us. Thank you for calling us to an inheritance in your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to be in hot pursuit of holiness as we flee the wrath to come. Help us not to be ashamed of your word or alter it to suit our sinful desires. Help us to show the world the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. After Paul elaborates on our need to submit to legitimate authorities and after reiterating the Ten Commandments in Romans chapter 13, he says this, which is parallel to what we read this morning in Ephesians. So Romans 13, 11 through 15. And, and, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, 
but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. And so I ask this morning, isn't it high time for us? Isn't it high time for you to awake out of sleep and to get in earnest regarding salvation? Salvation is not a passive thing. Salvation is not just something that's given to you. It's not just something that happens to you. Salvation demands your active participation. As we read in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's active. That's emotional. That's passionate. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. You see, your problems are not primarily psychological. You may have psychological problems, but your primary problem is sin. Sin may cause some psychological problems, but if we try to bypass that remedy, when we decide to get serious about knowing and applying God's word to our lives, believing and obeying, then dramatic improvements will come. And so I would urge you to stop seeking remedies that simply excuse your sins or divert you from sin or change the subject. Seek the remedy in Jesus Christ that removes your sins. There there is the hope. There is the gospel. We are humbled by our ignorance, Lord, and the audacity of our sinful pride. There is nothing man, nothing man is more apt to be proud of, for knowledge puffs up, and yet our greatest knowledge is but vanity. We have infinitely more ignorance than we do knowledge. Let us therefore remember in all of our thoughts of you, O God, that you are God, and we are men, and therefore we ought to be humble. And as weak creatures, we should lie low before you. We acknowledge that whatever true knowledge we possess, we first receive by your revelation of your knowledge, and that only as we have come to think your thoughts after you do we obtain any real knowledge at all. Thy word is truth. Father, your omniscience is of great comfort to us. Your people in this age wherein you have placed us We are your people, for all the evil conspiracies of men are known by you. No adversary escapes your notice. You cannot be deceived by the craftiest men or the most closely guarded secret, because you know all. You are fit to be our only object of trust. Because you see the secret places, so too you hear our secret prayers, regard our secret sighs, and bless our secret service. You know our sins, you know our frame, you know our needs, but praise you, Father. You also know the righteousness of the Son and value of his suffering on our behalf. You understand better than we do what we have committed, and you also understand better than we do what our Savior has merited for us. Without your omniscience, O Lord, the whole world would be mere chaos and confusion. Replace now our ignorance with the knowledge of your word. Bless us now as we assemble around tables to eat and fellowship. Help us, Lord, to delight in you and in one another. Bless our rest today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. Amen. Amen.